Welcome to Silver Lining, the podcast where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. This week, Yanji Huang, doctoral student in late imperial and modern Chinese history at Columbia University, discusses how the notion of sacrifice has changed within China since the 1960s and how it has been invoked again during the pandemic. So I came from um, history to East Asian studies. So before that, I'm a master of history. Uh, in National University of Singapore. Mm-hmm. And before that, I worked as a, um, how do you say that? Maybe policy analyst who was responsible for writing background briefs to the government in Singapore about China. So I worked in a think tank in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And before that, I was a student uh, in the National University of Singapore specializing in economics. So I came all the way from economics to policy studies, history. And then end up here. Yeah, I, I can see that from your work that um, like you are focusing right now, uh, or in your book um, on the political economy aspect, and that yeah. kind of weaves together your um, background. Yep. Yep. So the so the band book was actually um, basically my a consummation of my work on Chinese political economy in uh, the East Asian Institute in Singapore, which is more of a policy focused. Uh, but also uh, very much uh, theoretical exploration in the relationship between the state and the market in both contemporary but also historical China. But after that, uh, after moving to Colombia, my work has been increasingly focused on social history of Maoist China. Mm-hmm. So my dissertation project um, uh, revolved around uh, the, this is the term I coined for the 60s and the 70s, Revolution austerity in urban China. So I'm 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 working on how the families were coping emotionally and economically with the um, financial and also social consequences of uh, the Cultural Revolution and the Cold War in the 60s and 70s. And how does that produce a new ideology in urban China, which now we are very familiar with that the Xiao Kang ideology. So the act, it actually originated in Maoist China, but now became a, like the dominant uh, official ideology. So that's basically what I'm working on. So I'm trying to use a lot of um, uh, grassroots sources like family letters. So family letters constitute about half of my primary source materials. I'm trying to um, contextualize those um, grassroots sources within a larger scope of official sources and also the, um, the grand narrative of um, cultural revolution China to work out a uh, bottom-up view of China's social and economic transformations in the 60s and 70s, especially in Shanghai. I see. This is a very interesting shift from your previous work. And I just wonder, like, what has brought you to this specific like more social history aspect of um, China right now that you're working on? Um, I'm, so it's actually a compromise between a more um, ambitious uh, grand intellectual history of sacrifice, which uh, I think you came across my uh, uh, master thesis on sacrifice uh, and my interest in uh, the more uh, practical issues of the political economy. So I'm trying to figure out how does the grassroots, that is to say, ordinary families, workers, uh, 
cadres and intellectuals uh, who don't really necessarily have this kind of political influence uh, cope with a larger historical shift. By that, I mean the Cultural Revolution and also the Cold War mobilizations of urban families, say, say the Sendang movement. Uh, and especially thinking about how sacrifice uh, was not just an intellectual concept, but, but is also a practice uh, or daily ideas shared by many Chinese families. So one of the arguments was saying, uh, I was trying to articulate that the locus of sacrifice, the goal of sacrifice uh, was relocated from uh, communism to the family in the 70s. And that's what has made China, uh, the China today. We wanted to tie back to your research on sacrifice and ask, in your opinion, how does the notion of sacrifice inform the way Chinese people view their country in the present day in contrast to the 60s or 70s? When we are speaking of sacrifice, we are speaking of a lot of different things, firstly. Uh, at the practical level, I mean, ethical, moral level, we are actually speaking of two different kinds of sacrifice, um, especially in the work I'm doing. One is kind of political sacrifice where you are really um, putting the nation or the um, or communism or the world before yourself. Uh, you are trying to uh, give up your wealth, your opportunities, or, or even your life for kind of larger, grander, and more sublime objective. And that's the kind of sacrifice that characterized China of the 70s, especially officially, right? Uh, and as far as I know from a lot of writings, as this kind of notion of giving up your life and your everything for a larger, grander political objective um, was quite influential even among the youth who are not necessarily in the front line like soldiers. So that was kind of sacrifice in the 70s. But nowadays, you know, you might also know from your cultural background, like contemporary China or uh, Korean, uh, that when the East Asians, including Chinese, are talking about sacrifice nowadays, um, I mean, forget about like the official medium where you still hear those slogans. But when you're talking about it in daily life, it uh, maybe not in uh, the particular word of Xisheng, but in other terms, you are actually talking about your family, mostly, or yourself, right? You want to give up a bit of your present enjoyment. Uh, and then you want a better future for yourself and for your family, especially for your children. And that's the kind of sacrificial practice that was most dominant. Um, I think from the 70s onward, and I'm sure uh, for the older generations, for my parents' generation, at least, who are born in the 50s and 60s, there are still, this is still the dominant um, uh, kind of sacrifice. Uh, in the Chinese, there is a, even a magazine, right? A children rearing magazine in Shanghai that's named for children, for the children. And that's the kind of sacrifice they're engaging with. And, but for our generation, for the people who are born after uh, the reform, Growing up in the 90s and, and, and uh, early 21st century, I think, again, sacrifice began to like drift from that locus. And uh, now it become less prevalent, maybe less talked about, because people are more and more talking about 
uh, enjoyment at present. People are talking about their own development, career, right? People are talking about other things, things that are different from sacrifice. To make it a bit more specific and moving on from the previous question, in terms of the pandemic, I mean, you said that a lot of people are more concerned with their family than perhaps the ideology of communism in, in, in comparison to the past. But do you think the notion of sacrifice has been used by the government at all in terms of how they've dealt with the pandemic um, or how they are portraying the pandemic? People, are, people, have, people there have made sacrifices for the nation. According to a very important uh, moral principle of reciproc- reciprocity, the government also developed a lot of sources, a lot of sources, resources on that region. So it's like you are like in the front line of a war, right? That's the, that's the term I think uh, China evoked during the pandemic. You are on the front line of war and then all other places, all other uh, regions have to come to aid have to participate. And after that, of course, I think Wuhan and Hubei, they, they, they probably get some kind of preferential treatment in terms of future development or, or some kind of a financial assistance because it really suffered a lot in the first two months of this pandemic. So that's, that's the term sacrifice, how sacrifice was implicitly evoked to refer to this kind of situation do you think these promises that the government are making, um, be it a financial or kind of social incentive, do you think that'll be enough for people to be okay with the sacrifice that they have made? I think they are doing okay, as far as I know. I mean, I do know that after the, the, the pandemic, there's the, um, uh, a major flood in June, right? In, in June and July. Uh, but as far as I can hear, people are doing okay financially. So it must be with the help of uh, central government transfers, because without that, local government would just be, uh, it would just be impossible for the local government to bear all those costs. So people still get a pension and still get paid. Uh, so, but that is really referring to the narrow group of people that I know of, right? So people who are working for the government or in the professional sectors, but I think people in the rural areas, those migrant workers, they might have not uh, had that kind of help. Do you think there is a difference between the notion of sacrifice that you mentioned previously in the 70s and maybe like more recently in modern China and the notion of sacrifice that you see in the pandemic? Um, how is the notion that we see currently being informed by the previous versions of sacrifice and how is it different? Uh, I think in terms of the government uh, official discourse, there is a quite a strong uh, continuity. The government is still talking about how um, every crisis has to fought, has to be fought like a war, mm-hmm. right? And the, as a war, everyone is a soldier. You have a duty to, to sacrifice. Right. For soldiers, it's of course your life, but in terms of pandemic, it's your freedom of movement. And, uh, and, and I think people still take that for granted. Right. Um, and at that level, I think Chinese people's uh, values were quite in tune with the government discourse. So it's working quite well. 
in the case of Wuhan uh, and in case of um, other major affected cities right now. Uh, that's why we, we don't really see a lot of uh, grievances nationally at this point of time. I'm not talking about February when things are still uncertain, right, in China. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting contrast as well. And that kind of ties into like what we are interested uh, about the difference between China and maybe like Western states and specifically the US. Um, and we um, think given your background in the pol political economy of China, uh, what you what what is your opinion about the current Chinese US relations and specifically about the trade wars and the US government's reactions to a lot of tech company private business behavior in China? I'm not an expert on trade <laughs> and national politics for that, but as far as I know, I think this time has been extremely um, abnormal. Mm -hmm. Right. The kind of the current period of time in history has been extremely abnormal in the sense that people are getting very emotional on both sides. Mm -hmm. People are getting very uh, heated up mm -hmm. by the kind of uncertainties that is that is mounting before us because of the both uh, physically but also financially because of the pandemic. So both sides have been extremely emotional. So when you are becoming emotional, uh, it's very easy to stir up uh, strong nationalism. And at this time of political uh, uncertainties, that become a driving force for a lot of strong actions from all sides. So, so that's, that's the most important factor right now. But of course, you are, when you're speaking of like a international situations, you're speaking of trade tensions, it, it all stretches back to the 90s, right? Even uh, stretches back to the to the middle of last century when China enters into uh, the world system, and there's a lot of I would term it a problem of integration because China's domestic institutions and the kind of both its flexibility, adaptability, but also its uh, rigidity and the larger global situations, institutions. So, so given the kind of institutional conflicts or tensions. They're bound to be uh, uh, sources of tension in terms of trade, investment, and geopolitics, even. So, so, so you, when you're looking back like 50 years, these kind of things were definitely the structural force, right? So, we have a structural force that is shaping our current crisis, and also we have a lot of strong emotions that, uh, that worked as driving force. So when these two collide, when these two combined, actually, uh, in the last few months, it's, that's what we see, the kind of situation evolving. Yeah, we definitely see how the structural difference kind of played into the current conflict. We had, do have one last question about you doing research in the U.S., but you are doing research about chi on China in the East Asian Studies Department in the U.S. University. Um, and you mentioned that you had background in Singapore. And we just wonder how that kind of different locale of doing research or like the institutional differences that you experience as um, a China scholar in different countries. Um, I think that's a great question. I, I, I haven't really thought about that enough. Um, it's, I would say that I have very little experience working in Chinese institutions apart from the archives and library and some university um, 
uh, I would not say I'm really affiliated with that, but I work with colleagues in China, but not at the institutional level. So I know very little about Chinese institutions. Chinese uh, university work on a very different uh, set of rules mm -hmm. uh, than the US, right? Mm -hmm. So you might have more on that than me. Uh, and Singapore somehow is part of a British system, right? Singapore is part of uh, the British Empire before 1959. Uh, mm -hmm. And that it was trying to modeled itself after the U.S. Uh, higher education. So, so in Singapore, I mean, I can compare Singapore and the U.S., then uh, there is no East Asian studies in Singapore. First things first, you don't really have the idea of East Asian studies. There are China studies, but then the China studies were really modeled after the U.S. So, so in Singapore, things are still done very much on a uh, disciplinary basis. So if you're working on Chinese history, your colleagues are likely um, historians who are working on Southeast Asia. The station um, framework is a platform for uh, scholars of different periods of Chinese history <clears throat> and scholars who are working on discipline, different disciplinary um, background and also scholars who are working on Korea and Japan and Mongolia and Vietnamese. Uh, for them, for those scholars from different um, area and disciplinary specializations to work together. So that's the point of having an East Asian uh, framework. You've been listening to Silver Lining with Yan Hua Chen, Ji Yun Moon and Jasleen Chagger. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges by cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Yan Ji Huang, and thanks to you for tuning in. See you again.